Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. Hi, my name's Jenna. I'm calling from Somerville, New Jersey. My name is Rachel. I live in Eugene, Oregon. Not having enough money is stressful and every aspect of your life. We're always struggling for money. As soon as we get anything in savings, it goes right back out the door on tires or car maintenance or shoes for the kids. You think about things that you need to buy, like supplies for the house, toilet paper and things like that, and hope they go on sale soon. But we try really hard not to make it our son's problem while still giving him the language that everything in this world costs money. Minor car problems turn into major things. And you can't afford to take care of yourself like you want to, to eat healthy, or in my case, even go to the dentist, and you feel it as a constant throbbing ache in your jaw and in your life. All week, we've been looking at wealth in America, who's got it, who doesn't, and why it's so hard to attain. Many of you know what that feels like. I'm Tanzina Vega, and today on The Takeaway, the stress of being poor. Studies show that your wealth is directly connected to your health. And though the United States is the wealthiest country in the world, as we've been hearing this week, where that wealth falls is getting increasingly uneven. Take Strawberry Mansion, a low-income neighborhood in North Philadelphia. Richard Wright Elementary School is a school in Strawberry Mansion with about 360 students from pre-K to the fifth grade. The poverty rate in the school's zip code, 19132, is 40%, and the median household income is $23,000. That's less than half of the national average. And that poverty can have a psychological impact that can trickle down to kids. Janine Payne is the principal of Richard Wright Elementary School. There is a student that comes directly to my mind, a young girl at our school. And she has been in outpatient therapy since before kindergarten age. So we'll say about four or five ongoing. She has been removed from her mother. Her mother has signed away parental rights, so she's been in foster care. She was with one family that was pre-adoptive, but then due to circumstances that we could not find out, she was removed from that house while they went into counseling. And during that time, she was placed in, I lost count, at about seven different foster family homes that she was with. It was so high that they actually had to change agencies for her because they ran out of families in the one agency that she was with. During that time, her behavior spiked and they considered putting her on medication. Meanwhile, nobody is thinking that perhaps the instability of home and her not even knowing who was going to pick her up on certain afternoons from school was affecting her ability to you know, maintain her behavior. And I recently found out that she also has twin brother, sister, siblings that she hasn't seen in over a year. So tell me about what that does to her and students like her who are going through this in terms of learning, in terms of the day-to-day impact on their education. First of all, she's a model of resilience because she still manages to be very academically functional. Do I believe she's actually doing as well as she can? Of course not. There is no way that we can look at her and say that she is using the full capacity of what she's able to do to engage in reading and math if, again, she's worried about what adult is going to take me from school today and where am I going to end up tonight. It's really sad, um, amazing that she still manages to come to school each day, 
which again is not her home, and trust us to take care of her and engage with us with our task, which is to educate her until she goes back into this cycle at the end of the day. Do you think we're aware? I think often when we, we being, you know, adults in this country think about stress, we think about our own stress, right? How our commutes and paying the mortgage and things like that. Do you think there's enough awareness about basically what we're talking about, which is childhood stress as a result of these external factors, poverty, et cetera, and the impact that they have on children's ability to learn? Not only do I think we're really not aware, but then you can extend that a little bit to say there's just a lack of sensitivity. And I would extend that. So we we're, we're talked about an extreme case just then. But let's go to a less extreme common case of your basic kindergartner. And I'm talking about a regular kindergartner that may come from a stable household, whatever the family unit is, was fed in the morning, has all of their clothes. This child exists at knee level walking into a building for the first day on the first day of school on a schedule totally different from anything that they've had before with people that they've never really seen before. And we put them in lines and lead them around buildings and open doors that are much bigger than them, tell them they can't go to the bathroom when they feel like it. I couldn't imagine what kind of stress in a child's mind that is. And that's normal. That's an expectation that we give to children just for the first day of school. Now you add all of those basic housing security, food security, social emotional stability. When you, leave, when you pile that on to a child, it's really a, a, a huge endeavor. And just briefly, can you tell us what some of the longer term consequences of this type of stress, food insecurity, poverty, et cetera, will have on children? We can start with just the research around the adverse childhood experiences. I would refer anyone and everyone to the TED Talks that was led by Dr. Nadine Burks Harris, where she talks about we're talking about taking years off of, off of children, people's lives. The number of adverse childhood experiences in a full inventory can determine what the likelihood of you of the your life expectancy is. So once you get beyond that, which is just how long will you live, then what you do while you're alive, what you're able to persist through and do what you're able to carve the area of your brain and your focus and your psyche to be able to dedicate to absorbing, comprehending and and processing academia. You know, if you if you're trying to budget for groceries, it's kind of hard for me to take your focus away for a trigonometry. If you're trying to figure out how to heat your home, you know, the the physics of a moving car and you may never own one is not that important. So you're really asking people to step outside of what their regular daily existence and possible survival needs are to absorb this information that we tell people, children, is important. And I just don't think we have enough appreciation for the magnitude of that task. Janine Payne, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. Janine Payne is the principal of Richard Wright Elementary in North Philadelphia. Poverty is one of the biggest killers in the United States. 
Beth Truesdale is a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard Center for Population and Development Studies, and we reached out to her for more context on the link between wealth and mental health. Growing up poor has a very, very long arm. People who grow up poor tend to have higher rates of stress, of poor mental health, of anxiety, of depression, of diabetes, of heart disease, and they die younger. Truesdale says that these conditions can take root when you're young. About 20% of children in the United States are living in situations where their families may not have enough food to make it to the end of the month. Certainly a lot of research now is attending to this link between parents' well-being and children's well-being. And they're really understanding that you can't help children without also helping the parents. People call it a two-generation strategy. Um, We know that kids who grow up in very deprived circumstances um, experience what some researchers call toxic stress. Toxic stress is the kind of thing that we have some good evidence that it actually affects the way that um, children's brains develop, especially in the first few years of their lives, in ways that can have very serious long-run consequences for their physical and mental health. But adults, of course, experience it too. Living paycheck to paycheck, as many Americans do, without wealth, even changes how you think. There's also a thing that happens inside people's minds when they're confronted with less than they need. And one answer is that they're experiencing something that researchers call scarcity. If you've ever been up against a time crunch, you know how scarcity works. When you're up against a deadline, you become really good at doing whatever you have to do in order to meet the deadline. But there's a price to pay for this extra focus. Psychologists call it tunneling. Anything that falls outside your narrow mental tunnel of focus gets ignored, it gets put off to a later date. So you don't exercise because you're busy. And people who live in situations of chronic poverty where they're having difficulty paying debt, they're likely to be taxed like this, cognitively taxed. And just like with wealth gaps, health gaps tell an important story. The rich are getting healthier and the poor are not. On most measures, we continue to see average health of the U.S. population improving. But what those improving averages do is they hide really big gaps. And we've seen that mortality rates, the life expectancy for people with a college degree, people who are at the top of the income distribution, that's gotten better and better and better. But for people who are farther down the income distribution, we see a flattening off. And in some groups of the population, even a decline in people's health and well-being and in the age at which they die. Hi, my name is Rosie, and I'm a mom of four, and I work really hard at two jobs, and I think it is way more impossible to create wealth and save money than many, many people may understand. And uh, my kids are young. I'm looking at college ahead. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I think people would be, people who don't experience trying to live on a budget, trying to save money, people who are making minimum wage, I really, truly believe don't get it necessarily and uh, I wish they did. Hi, my name is Stephanie. I'm from Minneapolis. My single mom struggled a lot with money and she never let us know. In fact, when I was little, she told us about how 
little Debbie treats were really exciting. And so she hid all of her money problems from us. And because of that, my brother and I had an extremely happy childhood. Um, we never knew. The downside is that uh, since I've become an adult, I don't know how to manage my money. And I've struggled severely with credit card debt in my most recent days. Uh, it's become a serious issue in my marriage, and it's actually putting a delay on our having children. You can always call 877-8-MY-TAKE to respond to the conversation you just heard. And our big thanks to WHYY and their Broke in Philly series for their reporting on trauma-directed programs in Philly schools. 